Hello, everybody. My name is Lon Strohschein, former public company executive turned lifestyle engineer. One year ago, I left my job as a public company executive, and I left without a resume, without another job, without a Rolodex of clients. But I left anyway. I left believing that the best years of my life were in front of me and knowing that they weren't going to be found where I was standing. I left and my mission has become to inspire the lives of a thousand dudes, to inspire the dude I used to be, to go do the things they want to do. My job here is to give you courage to finally act. And it's to remind you that dude, at this stage in life, nobody shows up to do it for you, but I'm here and I'll travel that highway with you. Thanks for being here. Enjoy this episode. We'll see you along the normal 40 highway. Hey everyone, my name is Lon Strohschein, founder of The Normal 40, and I am super excited to have you here. Hey, look, today we've got uh, we've got kind of a blast from the past uh, for those of you who've been around The Normal 40 for a little bit over a year. Um, I'm going to replay a podcast. Well, actually, it was it was a it was an event we did with our insider group. Look, if you're around, I've got this little community called the Insider, and I'll bring some special guests in from time to time. It uh, it's an off social media community. You can find it. Go to my website normal40.com. Go to community up top, and uh, and for twenty five dollars a month, you get access to me and some pretty cool people. And this is actually one of those events that I did about a year ago when I was brand new on the path. Man, I didn't have a podcast. I was just dreaming about starting a book. And I was just creating these relationships and friendships with people who were on the same trail I was on. And I'd come across this gal. Her name was Mel- Michelle Karan. And she um, she was brand new in her journey as well. And so we connected on LinkedIn and we clicked immediately. She's a pilot. I'm a pilot. The big difference is she flew F-16s and I flew archers. And if you're a pilot, you get the difference. If you're not a pilot, trust me, there is one. So uh, she and I got out of call and she decided, she had decided recently before we did this podcast, we did this podcast in June of 2022. um, And she had decided only months earlier that she was going to separate from the U.S. Air Force, where she was a Thunderbird pilot. So the elite of the elite. And she was going to start her own business as an entrepreneur, something she never had dreamed about doing just a year earlier. So it goes back to my point, never underestimate or don't, we all overthink or we all underappreciate how differently our life can be in one year when we set our mind into being curious about what we could be doing next. And that was her story. So this episode was recorded a year ago. Michelle was fresh on her journey. I was fresh on mine. She was dreaming about doing a book. I was dreaming about doing a book. We were both rotating out of our previous lives into our new lives. And this is where we were at in the conversation we had. You're going to hear a few questions from some of the insiders at the end, asking about rotation out of military and all the things, the imposter syndrome and all the things that she worked through. An F-16 fighter pilot at the top of her game, flying for the Thunderbirds. It finds everyone. The last thing I'll say is one of the things I've come to realize after 437 conversations with people all over the world, people just like you, probably if you're listening to this, we've rambled. And what I've learned is everyone has a normal 40 moment. Everyone has this point in their life when something happens to them and they're forced to deal with change or they can feel change rising and building up in them. And they're forced to deal with that moment. And they'll either tolerate for longer than they wish they would have this existence that they're not all that proud of, or they rise up, push through it, and they figure it out. 
And that's exactly why we're here. We're here to inspire you to work through that moment, to get clarity on what you want to do next, to put a plan together and figure out how you can start living your second half story. All right, we're going to get right into the podcast. I'll see you at the end. And the reason we're playing this is we're going to bring Mace back. So you're going to hear this podcast from a year ago, and Mace and I are going to ramble. And in the next week or two after this podcast, you're going to get to hear Mace and I get the update with where she's at with her book, where she's at with her speaking career. Is she actually uh, over the fear of not knowing how she's going to make her own payroll to herself for the next month? Something we talk about in this podcast. Anyway, thanks for being here. Thanks for being on the Normal 40 Highway. One more thing that I probably better mention. Hey, on July the 29th, excuse me, July the 19th, my book, The Trade, comes out. I would love it if you would consider buying the trade and sharing the trade. My journey's been awesome. My journey's been actually uh, incredible over the course of last year, and I talk all about it. But the goal of that book is to get you into action. It's to get you into a community where you can feel like you're not alone and get you into action and get you moving forward. I would love it if you'd consider buying the book. I would um, be grateful if you'd share it with a friend. And I really want, my mission is to inspire the change in a thousand lives. And if you're one of those people, I want to be part of it. And my goal at the end of the day is to have a thousand notes of thanks. And if your name is on my wall, that's going to be pretty spectacular day. Everyone, thanks for being here. Enjoy this ramble with my friend Mace. And uh, I'm going to see you on the backside. Thanks for being here. And this is just kind of a free flowing discussion that you and I will have, Mace. And I'll ask you some questions about where you're at in life and how you just how you got to where you've been. It's just spectacular. And then I'm going to turn it over to the people who are on the phone if they've got any questions and just let them have a conversation with you about anything that's on their mind. You cool? Sounds good. All right. The other thing I'll say to the people who are on is, look, this is Mason. I did have one conversation when I asked her if she would be crazy enough to do this. And and her answer was a quick yes. But so there's nothing on here that's part of a script or anything that we've talked about before. And it's certainly any questions that you might um, decide to ask, obviously, aren't aren't anything. So super cool of you, Mace. I know that um, just watching you and your trajectory um, over the last few months, a few weeks, not even months has been awesome. And I know that you're, you're probably getting a lot of demand on your time. So thanks for taking a little bit of time to spend with the normal 40. Yeah, absolutely. I really like events like this, where it's just a free flow conversation and people get to ask questions in real time. Um, so I'm excited for it. Cool. Well, um, I'm going to hop in and, uh, one of the things that I discovered in our first call that just kind of blows me away, but for the people who know me, they know that I love small town mid-America. Freaking love it. Uh, I'm a product of it. I'm going home to it. I'm going to leave later today after this call. I'm going to take at least my 10-year-old and we're going to go farming. Um, and I just love it. It's not an act. It's just totally part of me. And I discovered that we share that. In, well, we, we share the upbringing. I'll let, you do, I'll let you answer if you love it or not. But I understand you're a farm girl from Wisconsin. Yep. Grew up in Medford, Wisconsin, which is North Central, um, about three quarters away up the state. My town had 4,000 people, so pretty small, like one standard public school system, and that's your only option. Uh, And really no aviation exposure at all. No military base nearby. At least you have that. Um, 
I, yeah, just no, no aviation exposure as a kid growing up other than flying commercially a few times. But now that I live in Las Vegas and it's 108 degrees outside today, I definitely miss the Midwest and the grass and the trees and the weather and well, especially the summers, I would happily come back. Awesome. So, but you grew up and was it your parents, your grandparents were actually farmers. Yes, my grandparents, we lived right next door. So <laughs> I feel like fairly traditional for farm families in small towns in the Midwest. And my grandparents lived in the house that my mom grew up in. They, my parents actually live in that house now still. Um, now that my grandparents don't live there anymore, but I grew up in a different house right next door. And as a kid, I was over there all the time. And I was telling Lon last time, I kind of got the best of both worlds because I wasn't in the actual farm family that was running it. I was just tied to it. So I didn't have to wake up at 4am and do chores before I went to school. Like a lot of my friends did, but I got all the fun parts where I got to go over there when baby animals were being born and build hay forts and just do all the cool adventurous part um, of being a farm kid without all the work. So I cheated a little bit. I feel like I can't label myself as a true farm kid because I realized the work that goes in behind the scenes. If you grew up when you're, where your grandparents were farming in a house that your mom was born in, in a community the size of 4,000, you're a farm kid. You <laughs> are, you got it. Don't, you just own that. Sounds good. As far as everyone in Vegas is concerned, I'm definitely a farm oh, yeah. kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to come to South Dakota where it's even in question. If, if you had a stoplight, it's me, you might be a city kid, but, yep. but uh, most parts of the world, you are bona fide farm kid. Okay. So your farm kid, um, grew up in a little town in Iowa. No, Wisconsin. What, what, how did you, what's the next step? We know where, we know where you get to what's kind yeah. of the next step. You're, you're farm kid. You, you go into high school. What happens to you where, where all of a sudden something hits you like, look, I, this is pretty cool. Yeah. I distinctly remember a conversation where my dad was like, Hey, I don't know if you noticed, but we don't have a college fund for you. Um, and I was, I was like a really driven, motivated kid. So I got straight A's essentially. I just put a lot of work into it. And he's like, you have the grades to get a scholarship, but we definitely need to definitely need to look into options. And he actually brought up Air Force ROTC. And my reaction as I was probably 16 years old when we started talking about that, I was like, I don't want to be in the military. I want to go to a normal college. I want to live in the dorms. I want to go to parties. I don't want to be doing this military thing while I'm in college because I didn't really understand how it worked. Um, so we looked into it a little bit more after that. And as much as I loved growing up where I did, I wanted to see the world and I wanted to, you know, explore all that was out there. And I started to realize that the military was a really good option to do that. And that the scholarship programs were pretty awesome. And so my plan was go to college as a criminal justice major because I wanted to go and be an FBI agent or work for the CIA. That was my grand plan. I would do four years and then to pay back my scholarship, four years on active duty. And then I would go, you know, apply to a three letter agency. Obviously that's not what happened, <laughs> but right. that was the big plan I had laid out as a 17, 18 year old. Um, and I went off to the Twin Cities to St. Paul um, I went to the University of St. Thomas there as a criminal justice major. And that's actually what I graduated with. All right. So you go, 
you go to school for criminal justice thinking you're going to be a CIA agent. It's still not, I'm still not tracking something, something happens somewhere where you're like, yeah, maybe, maybe it's not about a badge and a gun, but it's something bigger than that. Yeah. So a common question we would get as cadets from the cadre that run the program were like, who here wants to be a pilot? Because a lot of people come into the program with their sights set on that. And the first two years of me being in ROTC, I wasn't raising my hand when that question was asked. And then we went and visited a base. We actually went down to Florida. And that was kind of my first real exposure to military aviation. And we stayed on base. And I remember being out by the flight line at dusk and two F-15s took off in full afterburner. And I was like, holy crap. It, it was just like a, a visceral reaction. I got so excited. And I was like, yeah, sorry, FBI, forget that. Uh, I want to do that. And I mean, I was already on the path to set myself up for that. All I had to do was when they officially were like, hey, we're putting in packages for who wants to be a pilot, like who wants to throw their name in the hat. So all I had to do at that point was raise my hand and be like, yes, I'm interested. And that's what I did. And I ended up getting one. And the rest is kind of history. I ended up flying for the next 13 years on active duty. All right, we're still missing some steps. It's a, look, if it was as easy as yeah, I'm interested, and all of a sudden I'm a Thunderbird pilot, I'd have, I would have done that. Okay, so you're there, you see these F-15s take off, full afterburner. You probably feel it, you know that it's that rumble in your chest you can feel. Um, and and when did you say had you flown up? Had you done any flight school at in that moment before that moment? There was one flight I had gone on as a cadet in ROTC, like maybe freshman year, I think. Um, some of the local pilots in the Twin Cities had offered to take cadets up. And so I went with some guy in his Cessna and flew around over the city. And I, I liked it. I thought it was cool, but that wasn't enough to make the tipping point. Um, so I feel like I really went all in with not really knowing what I was getting myself into and also not quite realizing how much of trying to drink from a fire hose those first couple of years would be of just how much you had to learn to go from zero flight time to flying a high performance aircraft is a steep learning curve. So all of your flight training was um, done um, as a service to the United States government. Yeah, all started as a lieutenant right after I graduated awesome. college and commissioned. Awesome. So tell me, you know, one of the, one of the first things pilots talk about is, you know, your, your first, your first solo or your first, um, uh, cross country solo, whatever. Tell me about your first time soloing in a fighter jet. Tell me about, tell me about what that everything. I want everything. I want the walk from the hangar. I want the pre-flight. I want the, the canopy closing. Give it to me. I, I wish I could remember more specifics. It's funny. All of them start to run together. You'd think that one would stand out more than the others. Honestly, my very first solo uh, stands out more than that, which is only in the DA-20, which is a tiny little airplane, barely fits two people. It's got a prop. Um, but I remember when I got to F-16s, it was a significant jump from the other aircraft I had been flying, even though I had been flying a jet trainer in pilot training. When I actually moved up to the real deal, it was the program suddenly got a lot more difficult and 
in that setting, I think you lose a little bit of the sheer joy and perspective on how epic the thing you're doing is because you're so focused on, I'm being graded on this and like, I have to do this and this and this, and everyone's watching me. And so most of those flights, I just remember feeling the stress and the focus of the task at hand and not really having a chance to take a step back. I got to do that a few times, or I guess many times on flights later, once I was more proficient, but early on, there's just so much happening so fast. Your, your brain doesn't have any time to, you know, look out and enjoy the scenery or be like, holy crap, I'm flying a fighter jet right now. You're just like, what's next? I'm going, you know, 400 miles an hour. Things are happening quick. When, when, uh, when you take off in an F-16, are you full throttle? Oh yeah. It's, it's all the way, it's all the way forward. Yeah. Sometimes we'll take off. There's basically two options, either full afterburner, which is everything the jet has or full mill power, which is the highest power setting without lighting the afterburner. So you don't get the orange flame out the back, like that you typically associate with a fighter aircraft. And you'll take off in that mill power. If you need to save fuel for some reason, you don't want to burn a bunch of gas on the takeoff, but if you can, afterburner takeoff is a lot more fun and it's, you know, safer at higher elevations on hot days and depending on the runway length and all that stuff. So before we get to Thunderbird stuff, how we, we've all got, everyone who's ever flown an aircraft has the story that they sometimes don't want to tell because it usually involves some sort of an over human error. Yeah. I want to know what yours is. I mean, there's, there's going to be a ton, but the, the big one is the one that earned me my call sign. And that's what people always ask me about. Cause it's a, it's a, I don't know. I don't keep it a huge secret, but it's kind of a unique thing to fighter pilot culture. And so we like to keep what happened that gave us our call sign a little bit um, behind the curtain but it was when I was a Lieutenant in Misawa. So my first combat squadron was Misawa, Japan, which is way up North on uh, the main Island, but you know, like a five hour train ride from Tokyo on the bullet train. So it's pretty far up there. Uh, it was my second flight in country. So I'm brand new and I had learned to fly in Phoenix, Arizona at Luke air force base and different F 16s have different engines and they have a little bit different amount of, power, different thrust available. And so I learned on a less powerful engine in Arizona in the heat of the summer. And now I'm in Masao, Japan in December doing my second flight on arguably the most powerful engine. And so not having the perspective then that I do now, I didn't quite realize the adjustments I needed to make to what I did with my left hand, which is the throttle. And we were dogfighting. BFM is what we call it, but dog fighting, as you would know, it air to air, um, fighting against one V one. So one aircraft versus one other aircraft. And what I knew from my training and my very limited experience was when we would start a fight, my whole goal is to get to a spot where I can turn and point at the other guy so I can shoot him with the gun. And in order to shoot him, I have to be behind him and pointed at him. So you have to get your aircraft to that position. And you have to get some speed up to do that. And so in training, I would just light the afterburner all the way. So push the throttle up as far as it would go. 
I would leave it there and it would get me right at about the right airspeed for when I would roll up and start pulling to point. Um, so I was like, okay, the more things I can just leave and forget the better because stuff is happening so fast that you're just trying to take stuff off your plate so that you can focus on the thing at hand. So I did that. I got to the point where I would turn, I rolled, I started pulling and, uh, what should happen is after maybe 90 to 180 degrees of turn, I should be starting to point at him and like ready to try to shoot him with the gun. Um, obviously this is all training, so I don't have any actual bullets in my jet and the person, the other aircraft is my instructor. Uh, so I do that. I roll, I pull his aircraft is not getting any closer to my nose and I am G straining my little heart out, which to put that in perspective, uh, G forces like one G right now, the force of gravity, um, F 16 can pull nine G's. So imagine your body feeling like it weighs nine times what it does right now. Um, so if you can Google air force centrifuge videos and you can see people's faces like melting as they're struggling their way through nine G's, but you have to do a whole bunch of things to stay conscious under those conditions because the force is so strong that it's stronger than your heart's ability to pump blood up to your brain. Cause the force is going this way. And so you can black out. And if you did nothing, you would black out by like five or six G's, but we wear a special suit that squeezes our legs. We do this crazy breathing technique. We squeeze all our lower body muscles. All of that is the G strain to stay awake. And so I'm G straining. I'm at nine G's and I swear I stayed there for, for days, but it was probably just like a minute. Um, but I never got any closer to my uh, instructor and his aircraft. And I started to get really tired. And then the whole world started to get dark from the outside in until I was looking through you know, a tunnel, tunnel vision, essentially. And right about that time, he made a radio call to knock off the fight, um, to end the fight. Cause he could see looking over his shoulder that I wasn't pointing at him and a long time had gone by. We're just wasting gas at that point. He can see I'm messing it up. So we end the fight. Um, what happened is that stronger engine in cold temperatures, the jet engine performs a lot better in cold temperatures because of the air density. I had lit the afterburner and left it there. And when I rolled up and started pulling, I should have been somewhere around 0.93 Mach, uh, which in miles per hour, 550 to 600 miles an hour. Um, but based on all of those factors, different engine, I was actually over the mock. So I broke the speed of sound before I rolled and started pulling. Um, and the jet was so fast that it had a ton of energy, which normally you could hit nine G's for a handful of seconds. And then it drops down to six or seven, which is still not enjoyable, but it's a lot more maintainable than nine is. Um, but because I was so fast, I just maintained nine G's for over 360 degrees of turn. And I was going so fast. I couldn't turn tight enough to ever point at the other aircraft. So I was never going to win that fight. I was going to lose. And I almost G locked myself, which would have been going unconscious in the aircraft as a single pilot, which people have died from doing. So it's a pretty serious execution error with serious consequences. Um, but it also earned me my call sign because MACE sounds cool, but it stands for mock at circle entry for me breaking the mock as I entered the turn circle. 
it's a little heavy on the pilot jargon, but that's what it stands for. And it's all about me, you know, speeding while you're dog fighting. I have to think that that's a pretty respectable way to earn a call sign. If you're There's going over the clock, you're at nine G's. I mean, you didn't leave the, you didn't leave the gas hose in when you, when you taxied off, you know, and get, get a call sign from that. That would be horrible. This is a pretty decent one. Yeah, there, there's, I mean, it was super embarrassing at the time because I realized how serious the consequences could, could have been, but there are way worse stories of how people got their call signs. So I'll, I'll take it. So, okay. You're, how does it happen? You, this has happened. You've landed, you feel sheepish, you, you know, you, you kind of wish you could do it over. You figured out who walks in and says, you are mace. And here's why, how does that work? So you don't get named until you be, become fully uh, combat qualified as a wingman, which means you won't, we always go somewhere with another aircraft or several other aircraft. And so you won't be leading that group or that formation, but you're one of the jets that's, you know, following a more experienced pilot in another aircraft. Um, so once you're done with your mission qualification training is when they'll usually have a naming for you because they've, it takes maybe three to five months to get through it, depending on how busy the squadron is. And that's enough time for you to make several mistakes. So they have a lot of material to use to pick your call sign. Um, but we have what's called a roll call and a naming and the whole squadron's there on a Friday night. It's a whole social activity. Everyone's drinking beer and hanging out. And um, they, if you're getting named that night, you know it. And there'll be a whiteboard where everyone else in the squadron who's already named, already has a call sign, can write up ideas of what you should be called. And then they'll kick you out of the room and they'll all talk about like someone put Mace up there, they'll be like, what does that stand for? Like someone, my instructor pilot probably told the story because he was there that day. Sure. Um, but there would be all kinds of other random stuff up there that I don't even remember at this point. But usually some of them are like terrible names you would never want that make you sound like a complete idiot, even if you didn't know the story behind it. So they kind of just put those up there to mess with you. Um, we always try to give people call signs that can follow them throughout their career and they could be the mission commander leading an entire giant large force exercise with a hundred people in the room, all different platforms, Intel, the tankers, like everyone there. And they could stand up in front of the room and be like, all right, I'm Mace, your mission commander. If you stand up in front of the room and you're like, I'm Booger, your mission commander, like you lose a little bit of credibility. So even if it's a story that's talking about how you made a huge mistake, the call sign itself should be something that at least can sound sort of cool, I guess. <laughs> I think it's awesome. That's awesome. I've always wondered how, you know, who, how does that work? How, what is it? We all, we all know, you don't have to be a fighter pilot to know that fighter pilots have nicknames, right. but how they, how they come up with them, who grants it to them. I think that's, that's uh that's pretty cool. I mean, and it's, it's kind of, it's part of the, it's part of the ceremony. It's part of fitting in it's part of being there is, is getting that that has to be a big moment when you finally get the get to know what your call sign is going to be and it's going to follow you for the rest of your life yeah it's exciting and a little bit stressful too because you're like what stories are they telling while i'm not in there it's like it's like a roast that you don't get to be part of until the very end <laughs> i love it 
Well, I, uh, I shudder to think what my call sign would be if I left a group of my friends in a room long enough. It wouldn't be anything we could probably repeat here. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's cool. All right, I'm gonna move on just a little bit. Thanks for sharing the story about your call sign. I know that's uh, that is something that you don't just walk around and and tell everyone about. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah. No, it's 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 a cool story that I think a lot of people can learn stuff from if you like expand upon it. You know, being people look at fighter pilots and try to put them on pedestals a little bit, but it's a tough job. So everyone is making mistakes every single flight. So give a little peek behind the curtain. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. So you're, you are, um, F-16 fighter pilot, you're, you're in active duty. What's the transition from that to, Hey, my phone rang and it was, um, Thunderbird one. And he wants me to, he wants to, he wants me to come to fly with, how does, how does that work? Walk us through what, what happens? Where do you get to your career that all of a sudden that becomes an option for you? So you have to have at least 750 hours in a fighter aircraft. The Thunderbirds fly F-16s, but you don't have to be an F-16 pilot. You can be flying F-15s, F-22s, F-35, just some fighter aircraft. You'll go through like a short transition to learn the basics of flying an F-16 if you're coming from another airframe. So that times out 750 hours, I realize doesn't mean anything to most people that ends up being, usually you've been flying the jet for five or six years when you're meeting those qualifications. And usually for us, one assignment or one base location is three years. So you're usually coming up on the end of your second your second one, that was the case for me. I had three years in Masao, Japan, and then three years in Fort Worth, Texas. And I actually had my follow-on assignment already to go to New Mexico and be an instructor to teach new F-16 pilots at the schoolhouse. And I had never really made it a goal to become a Thunderbird pilot. And reflecting on it now, it was definitely something that had interested me. I can like see a few points where I saw the team fly or someone asked me if it was something I'd ever want to do. And it definitely was something that like piqued my interest and was intriguing to me, but I never told anyone that it was a goal I had. And I never set it as a goal for myself because I think in general, I thought I wasn't good enough to be on the team. So I didn't really have a lot of perspective as a younger pilot on what the flying is actually like and what all the job entails. So I kind of just like, not ever set it as a goal. And I was, you know, wrapping up my assignment in Fort Worth and I happened to see a hiring email that the Air Force sends out these big um, emails that go basically to everyone that's like, hey, we have this position for this thing open and this is how you apply. And I actually had deleted the first one that came out or never opened it. And this one was like, hey, final deadline to apply for the Thunderbirds for the next two years. Um, is like three days from now. And I was like, oh, I actually meet these qualifications for whatever reason. I opened it and actually read the qualifications, realized that I met them and was like, this is something I actually probably would really enjoy doing. And so I went to my boss that same day and here I am about to move to New Mexico. I already am getting emails from my new squadron there about when I'm showing up and all of this stuff. And this deadline is three days from now. 
And I'm like, Hey, what do you think about me applying for this? And he was awesome. He was just super supportive and a great mentor. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. You'd be great for that job. What do we need to do to make, make it happen? And we jumped through a lot of hoops to get all of the things that were required to apply, put together in such a short time frame. My application package was about 40 pages. So it's letters of recommendation from generals and all of my records, my performance reports, physical fitness reports, um, check rides from in the aircraft, a letter about why I want to be on the team, all of this stuff. And then we sent it off and waited to hear. And I think it was maybe like two months later when I got an email that I was a semifinalist. So I think about 30 people had applied and they were going to bring 12 of us out for a weekend on the road with the current team. So we actually went to an air show and saw the whole act, all the behind the scenes, the brief, the debrief, the planning that goes in, the public relations engagement stuff, because that's a big part of it that people don't really think about. Um, and then after that, waited a couple of weeks and then got another email finding out that I was a finalist. So now we're down to six and three spots were open to fly in the demo. They bring six of us out and do the same thing again, essentially. And now there's more interviews involved, interviewing with the the commander of the squadron, interviewing with the commander of the whole base, which was a general, um, a 12 person panel interview. The Thunderbirds have 12 officers on the team. So all of the current officers each asking questions, which is fairly intimidating. Um, and then I left and waited until July when I got a call. Um, and the positions that were open was one of the wingmen, I guess, number three, which he flies on the right wing of the boss. Um, number six, which is the solo that split off, do all like the head on passes, the single aircraft maneuvers, all of that kind of stuff. And then number eight, who's also a pilot, but doesn't actually fly in the demonstration that you see. He does the narration and he flies most of the reporters, celebrities, all the people that ride in the back seat. Um, and he's the advanced pilot. So he goes out a day before the rest of the team shows up to all the different places that the team goes. So those were the three spots available. And they did ask me during the interview, like what my first choice would be. And I'd said being a solo. And then it, the team doesn't necessarily pick where they're going to place you based on where you want to be placed. They kind of look at your experience and your personality and who else is on the team. And it's like a big puzzle. And they called and they told me that I was getting offered a spot and it was number six, which was the solo position, which was my first choice. So that was an exciting day. <laughs> I can't imagine how exciting that was. Okay. So I'm going to come back in a little bit to something that happened, but okay. So you get the call, you, uh, you call all your friends and say, Hey, loser, guess who's becoming a Thunderbird dog. And, uh, and you rub it in a little bit, at least that's what I've done. Um, and, uh, so then you, well, you, you sequence in and you start practicing with them and then you're, then it's showtime. So let's go all the way to showtime. Of course, that's what you do. So your first show, tell me about your first show, what's going on, what's going through your head. And what was the hardest maneuver that, that, uh, every time, what was the one that was like, all right, I can't get this one wrong. Yeah. Okay. Well, two parts to that answer. So about four months of training. Uh, we can get into that more in a minute, but my first event for the public. So my debut essentially 
the 20 or the 2019 team's debut was not actually an air show. It was a flyover and it was the Super Bowl. <laughs> so uh, we had just come together with all six of us flying in formation to, to get, because we had the solos, which I was what I was. We were learning all those individual maneuvers that had on passes, all of that stuff. The diamond, which is one through four, make a shape of a diamond when they're all together. They were working on their diamond specific maneuvers. And so we didn't come together as the Delta, which is all six aircraft. That's like what you see at flyovers. That's what you envision when someone says the Thunderbirds until a week prior. So we were definitely feeling the pressure there because I don't know exactly what the numbers of viewership is for the Super Bowl, but it's something insane. Um, so that was first event. First air show was in Tucson, Arizona. And I just remember being super nervous. Uh, because it starts with a show launch where we are at attention in front of the crowd. And so the crowd is maybe 15 yards away, all along the fence line, all staring at you while you're at attention, waiting to start your first air show. And that like the proximity of all of those people just watching you is so awkward at first until you get used to it. And then it's all synchronized, right? We like all turn around together and we march out and step and we put our G suits on and the first year, my G suit was so tight. They didn't have the right size and stock. So I had to like size down and it was like trying to put a pair of spanks on with like a hundred thousand people watching you. Like the zipper would get stuck. And so I would be like panicking, trying to pull the zipper up. Um, and my crew chiefs, which are two maintainers that are assigned to us for the whole season. So we develop a really close relationship with them and they're standing right there. Um, and I'm at the bottom of the ladder that goes up into the cockpit and they're just laughing at me while I'm like struggling to get my G suit on in front of all these people. Um, yep. And then get in the jet. And honestly, once the canopy closed and the jet started your visors down, your masks on now it's like, okay, I'm in the zone. The nerves start to go away, but it was that show launch portion where you feel so exposed out there to the crowd and then like, once you're in the cockpit, you're like, I can just pretend they're not there. I'm going to do the same thing. I've been practicing, you know, about a hundred times at this point. Um, so the nerves start to go away a little bit, but I definitely, by my third year, I enjoyed the third year the most because I felt the most comfortable with the demo. And I got to have a lot more moments where I got to have perspective and be like, wow, it's really beautiful up here. The, the water I'm flying over, you know, on an ocean show is that color blue is just amazing or be upside down doing the Calypso where the two tails touch. And I would like actually have the ability to consciously register things that were passing below me. So I'd be like, Oh, look, a home Depot or, Oh, look, whatever it is. And so it just made it a lot more enjoyable the first year. And honestly, a lot of the second year, which was really weird with the pandemic. Um, but the whole first year I was just so focused on, just doing the task at hand that I didn't have a lot of enjoyment in the actual flying. I think, I think that describes a lot of people who are new into something that, that yep. uh, they feel pressure to be a high achiever and they're expected to be a high achiever and the stakes matter. You know, it's, it's, it's all relative, but the pressure you feel, I think is, is, uh, is all the same, even mm -hmm. right down to year three, you, you kind of get in your groove, you kind of figure it out, your confidence grows um, and you, and you kind of hit your groove for a while. Um, and so, you, okay. So you, you'd gone through 
Um, I want to transition just a little bit into your decision to leave it. Tell me about, you know, what, what were you feeling when, when you said, you know, you've, you said a couple of really interesting things. One, you didn't think you didn't have a goal. You didn't have a goal to be a Thunderbird pilot, which is odd to me. When mm-hmm. I, when I went into any company or any position, I always, my mind always went to how do I get to the highest possible place? That's, that's not a good thing necessarily, but it is how I'm wired. Um, and I have to think that to be wired and have the aptitude to be a fighter pilot, you're kind of a, an aggressive climbing, I can do this, let's go get it. So you said something interesting. You said, I didn't know that I wanted to be a Thunderbird. I would, I might come back to that, but I want to, you then did it, you achieved it, you're doing it. And then something else happened. There's another calling. Your calling was your email that you finally read coming in, but there's something happened and you were feeling something. And that's what I want to key into because that's what people in normal 40 get to. They're doing well. They're, they're having success. They're, they're, they've exceeded what they expected to do with their life and their career. But yet something is like, I don't think I'm going to do this for another five years, two years, two months, 10 years, whatever. I've got to, I've got to get serious about what I'm going to do next. And before we talk about what you're doing, I would love if you could explain what were you feeling when it started to percolate in you that my, my days here as a, as a pilot, as a, uh, flying, flying, uh, Thunderbird six are numbered and I know it. What were you feeling? Yeah. So I normally you're a Thunderbird pilot for two years and I got a bonus year because of COVID and just the limited number of shows that we did in 2020. Um, my commitment to the air force, when you go through pilot training, the air force spends so much time and invest so much money in your training that you incur a 10 year commitment from the day you graduate pilot training. So from the time I commissioned, which is like became an officer, which was the same day I graduated college until graduating pilot training was about two years already. And then I owed 10 on top of that. So I'm basically under a contract for 12 years, essentially, which is looking back a pretty big decision to make as a you know 22 year old or whatever I was when I graduated college. Um, so my contract, if you will, expired in the fall of 2021. Yes, 2021. And a lot of stuff had happened in my personal life that had made me want to leave, lean towards leaving active duty. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to leave being a fighter pilot. There's a bunch of reserve job options. Um, So that was an option. But what made me really walk away from it is I, I don't want to use the word trapped, but I felt a little bit trapped by being on active duty for so long. I think kind of the stuff that you described as your, what you imagine the personality of a fighter pilot being like, like type a, the confidence bordering on arrogance, like all what Hollywood portrays it as. And I think what a lot of people see when they just see the outside I never fit into that. And that's just not my personality at all. So there was a good portion of my career where I felt like I had to put on my fighter pilot costume and go to work and, you know, pretend to be, you know, super assertive and super confident when really I had a lot of doubts, which 
is why I never set being a Thunderbird pilot as a goal for myself. Um, and I did a whole lot of fake it till you make it. And I made it, but there were a lot of times when I was still faking it. And as I got older, I started to have more perspective on that. And I was just tired of feeling a disconnect between who I felt like I really, really was and the things I really cared about. And that kind of filled my cup versus what I was doing, even though what I was doing was so cool. And there were so many once in a lifetime experiences that I got to have. And so a lot of times it's hard for people to understand why I would walk away from that. But I had done it at a really high level and I'd done it for almost 13 years and I was burned out. Like I, I didn't find joy in it anymore. I felt like I didn't care about it as much as I should. And then you start to get hard on yourself when you feel that way, because you're like, why am I taking this all for granted? Like everyone else would love to be in this position. And so I was just tired of feeling that way. And that's what really tipped the scale of me deciding that there were other things I wanted to pursue and I had other goals. And that wasn't my whole identity. That was a phase of my life that I really enjoyed and opened a ton of doors for me and taught me a lot of things. But that's, even though I still go by Mace for a lot of people, that's not my identity. Being a fighter pilot is not the only thing that is me. I think you just summed up. I know you haven't spent a lot of time in, in what I call the normal 40 group. Um, and there's about 850 of us in this group. And you just described beautifully what a whole bunch of really successful um, individuals who charge hard. We didn't, many of us, some did. I didn't sign a 12-year contract with any company to where I'm obligated, but I did. I did. I stayed 14. I stayed 14 for the same reason you did. It was, it was, uh, I was an executive. I had the nice office. I, I made big decisions. I was part of a great team in my community where I live. It was a, it was the place to be. And so when I, and I went through the exact same thing you went through when I'm, when I had days where I'm like, I would sit at my desk, beautiful, beautiful desk. And I would, I would say, well, is this it? Is this it? I mean, and then I would say, well, if this is it, shouldn't I just be on my knees giving thanks that my life is this blessed and instead of, and then the guilt would set in. I mean, you, you, you described it exactly. And I think, I think it's normal to get to a stage in your life when you feel like your work, what you're doing, whatever it is, wherever it is, wherever it is, when you feel like it's done, you've done it, you're satisfied by it. Sure. You'll miss it. But when you feel like your work is done, it's time to go. And that's hard to do. And it's hard to do because you don't know what you'll trade it for. So I want to know from you, you, you walked away from something that what you do is a dream of mine. So I am someone who dreams about what, what you did. How do you get to that point? How did you know what you were going to leave it for and be like, yeah, damn it. I'm going to leave it for this. How did you know what that was? It took a lot of, well, it took several months of kind of soul searching and figuring out the options that were out there because this was my first opportunity to ever even consider other options. So of course the airlines was a consideration and I had all kinds of supportive people from the Thunderbird network that were like, that are captains at all of the major airlines are like, come work here, come work here. Like I could have gotten hired. It would have happened for sure. And again, you know, that's something that so many people set it as a goal of becoming an airline pilot, one of the major airlines. And I'm like choosing to walk away from it. So it's another one of those things where it's hard 
for people to understand. But I felt like going to work for a huge company, like going to work for Southwest or Delta or whoever, I would be a number in, you know, thousands of employees. I would be a cog in the wheel and that I had more to offer than just flying people to and from their destinations. Um, And I think the assignment being a Thunderbird gave me a lot of opportunities to kind of explore some things I really ended up loving that I had never even thought about. And as soon as I put the blue suit on, I was instantly a role model for people. And especially being the only woman flying for the team, I was under a spotlight all the time. And when, even when it wasn't, you know, when I was trying to escape it, it was, I was there and I was put in a position where I could really impact people's lives and really inspire them to go do things that they wouldn't have otherwise done. And I started to realize the power of just like one in one interaction with people and how much that could change what they set as their goals and what they decided to go do, especially for, you know, little girls and young women, but for everyone. And I really love that part of the job. And honestly, by, you know, halfway through my three-year assignment there, I was like, the flying is cool, but what I like more is when I see the inspiration happen. And then people would follow up with me through social media, like years later, like two years later, they'd be like, Hey, you probably don't remember me. We've met at this thing. We talked for like two minutes or, Hey, I sent you a message two years ago and you sent me all this advice and I went and did the thing. And now I'm doing this. Now I like achieved my goal or I'm on my way. And it was the most satisfying, rewarding experience to, to feel like I played a tiny role in helping them figure that out. And so I started to think about how I could keep doing that. And I didn't, I never really pictured myself as an entrepreneur, uh, but I had people start reaching out and asking if I could speak at events. And I had always had to say no while I was on the team. And then they started to keep asking. And I realized the events that they were asking me to talk at were after my time on active duty would be done if I chose to leave. And I actually could say yes to these things. And I started to realize that they actually pay pretty well and you still get to impact people's lives. And a lot of the stuff I talked about today with, you know, being vulnerable and sharing the mistakes and sharing like the feelings of imposter syndrome and self-doubt and all those things that people don't expect the lead solo for the Air Force Thunderbirds to have struggled with is really empowering for the audience. And they suddenly are like, oh, she's just a person like I am with all of the same highs and lows and obstacles. And if she could go do that, I can go do whatever I've been too scared to go after. And so I started Upside Down Dreams, which is my company. And I primarily do keynote speaking, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff in the works, some coaching stuff and some consulting in actual uh, pretty well-established businesses and hopefully a book that I'm going to start here soon. So it's just taking shape, but going to work for myself has been the best decision I've made for sure. Highs and lows, roller coaster, uncertainty when it comes to income, but the ability to do stuff like this in the middle of the day on a Thursday or you know, I'm part of a couple of charities and they'll reach out and be like, Hey, we have this amazing event that we're doing. It's next week on a Wednesday. Can you come? And I can, like, I can shift my schedule. I can go do that. I can go to my nine-year-old's baseball games. I can pick him up from school. 
I can go work out my garage gym. Like just to have the flexibility that when I need to grind, I will be, you know, cities back to back for events, but I can, I have a choice, I guess for the first time I have a choice to say yes to the things that really fulfill me. And that's a pretty awesome spot to be in. I love it. You and I are in such a similar spot. Um, today I went flying because I could, right. there's nothing on my calendar. The only thing I had, I had two things on my calendar, this and one other thing, and there are things I wanted there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went yesterday all day for, for eight hours. And I don't see the, the gent I was with on the, on the call. Uh, and I started writing my book. I started going through the process and it's, it's chaptered and labeled and, and I'm, I'm right there. I'm right there with you. And, um, and I think so many, so many people know they're at the point where they're willing to leave. They're willing to trade. They're willing to do what you did, but they don't know yet what they're going to trade it for. You did because you had kind of these, these things going on. You, you kind of knew what that was. Do you have any advice for people who are, they know, they know a couple things. They know that where they're at, they don't want to be in two to five years. They know they've got more in them. There's something, their best days are in front of them. They know that, but they don't have a clue how to figure out how to peel it all apart, how to, how to risk income and those types of things. What advice do you have for somebody who's like, how do you figure that out? How do you get clear on what it is you want to do for the next 12 years of your life? Some of it is honestly a leap of faith and not feeling like you're hundred percent ready or you have it all figured out, but obviously you want to have some sort of idea. Um, there's just, I, and I'm just discovering this now, there are so many options to build businesses. Like I have never labeled myself as an entrepreneur or something I wanted to be my husband. He is like the epitome of an entrepreneurial spirit. That's just like what he's always wanted to do. For me, it always seemed kind of terrifying and here I am and it's amazing. But what I'm realizing is I'm trying to build the business and there's just whatever it is that you really enjoy doing, even now while you're in your current role, there's probably these other things that you really enjoy doing. It could be a hobby for you now, or like a charity you're part of, or what, whatever it is. I would say most of those things have a way to create a business with, with the ability to use like LinkedIn and create a network and a community and create digital products. And like the, the internet has opened up so many entrepreneurial options for people. It's, it's crazy. And I'm just starting to discover that now. Um, but yeah, and there's like a wealth of people out there that are just happy to help you like you, <laughs> like there's just so many people that have made the leap that are happy to be like, Hey, this is how I did it. These are the mistakes I made. This is my business model, whatever it is. You just got to start looking, start building that community. Just, just in what you've told me about your path in life to be exactly where you're at in this moment, you happen to be on the end of a runway when uh, F-15s took off and that, that planted the seed. The moment before that, the hour before that, you said you'd just been in, it wasn't the thing. Mm-hmm. And then it was the thing. Yep. And, then, and then you went and did it. You didn't apply for it. You didn't go looking for it, but you followed it. And then, and then you said you didn't have any intentions of being a Thunderbird. You're already an F-16 pilot. And it wasn't until you got a second email um, that you bothered to even look at the qualifications. And then you said, 
I better show up. I'm going to apply for this. I'm going to show up for it. You applied for it and, and, you, and you did it. When, and it was a leap. It was a jump. It was all these things that are uncomfortable and, and, uh, and miserable and exciting at yep. the same time. And now there's this one. There's this one. I'm curious to know, um, you know, a year before you came a pilot, you didn't know you're going to be a pilot. A year before you came a Thunderbird, you didn't even think you were ever interested in applying for it. And a year before you came an entrepreneur, you probably didn't know you were going to become an entrepreneur. I'm curious to know um, if that's true. Did you, did you know, was it, when did you know that my next step is going to be to take another leap? And here we go. So all three of those things, I kind of refer to them as pivotal moments, like huge pivots or moments that led to huge pivots. And at the time, I didn't realize that I had already had this interest. And I think now I'm getting better at paying attention to that, like the little things that pique your interest, but that you kind of just brush off. So you're like, oh, I'm not in a spot to take advantage of that. Or, oh, that's, I'm not good enough to do that. Or that comes with a lot of vulnerability or risk or whatever it is. I'm starting to realize now how to pay attention to those and be like, is this something I could go do? And that was like a big mindset shift for me where early in my career, I brushed those stuff, those things off all the time. I would never put myself out there to take advantage of them. Um, and then getting more into when I applied for the Thunderbirds. And since then, I've just kind of had my radar out waiting for that feeling, even though it's pretty subtle and it can be fleeting to just pay attention to it and file that away um, because the smallest experience or interaction with someone can end up being your pivot, your catalyst to, you know, a complete pivot. So I think it's something you just consciously have to realize and, and be ready to take advantage of. Yeah. I'm right there with you. The term I use is show up curious. You know, it's, it's hard. It's impossible. In fact, to be uh, curious and annoyed at the same time. Try it. Next time you're in a meeting and you're annoyed, get curious about it. You can't, you, it's a physically impossible to hold on to both of those. And when I show up curious as to why, why was I sitting in my office feeling the way I was feeling? What, what was calling me? And, and why do I like this so much? And if you'd have told me six months ago that I was going to be a dude, entrepreneur, quit my job and create a mission to help a thousand individuals own their second half story, have, be intentional. If they're pissed off and they hate work, do something to, sh to physically take them and shake them and say, it's on you. The days of somebody showing up and doing this for you are done. You own this. Let's figure it out. I, if you'd have told me six months ago that I'm going to be the guy that's helping people do that, I'd have said, you're crazy. But I showed up curious. I did it with one person, another, and then I started posting things. And now I'm you know, I'm talking to you. I've got all these wonderful individuals uh, on the call and, uh, you know, people show up because they're, they're ready and eager for it. Uh, and I am super, I am super excited about what you're doing because I think we share, we share a, a little bit of a history and decision-making process and we share a little bit of a mission with our go forward. So my last question before I, I hand, I'm going to see if anybody else has got questions if you're, if you're here is, so when you walk on, when you get ready to impact people. What, it, what is your blue suit now? Yeah, I guess that's a good question. I think it's stepping onto the stage to give a speech 
is a lot like stepping onto a show line at an air show to go out and perform for a crowd. It's just in a different, a different capacity. But I think the thing that, you know, my background and having that on my resume obviously is an attention getter, but I think what will make people, you know, refer me to more presentations and more speeches after seeing me and what makes this a sustainable business, not just a flash in the pan for, you know, a year after I leave the team is really my desire to be vulnerable and authentic with the audience, because I don't think there's enough of that. And there's so many speakers out there who are like, go do it. Like in your face, it's a lot of prior military people from like all different backgrounds, high-performing backgrounds. There's in your face, they're like, you know, suck it up, stop being a baby, go do it. Uh, I don't think that approach works for everyone. So I, and again, that does not align with my personality. So I think to really dive into what people worry about in their heads that they don't talk about and the things that really keep them from doing stuff, it's not being lazy. You know, it's not, it's not that there's a whole bunch more that goes into it. I love it. Great answer. So um, I'm going to ask if anybody on the call has a question that, that they want to ask. I'm going to be quiet for a little bit and uh, just see if anybody goes off mute and has the, the courage to, to hop on and, and ask a question. Yeah, hey, um, it's Neil Harris. Uh, can I jump in? Go for it, Neil. Thanks hey, for joining, man. Hey, thanks for doing what you're doing, Lon. Thanks, Mace. Uh, it's a great authentic, uh, powerful story. Um, also in the midst of, of a military transition. Um, and it, uh, it is a big jump and a big risk. Uh, and I'm in my last month of, of active duty here. I did start a new job in, in Bozeman, Montana and, and going back West to a small town living for us was an important factor. We wanted to do that. Um, so we're in the midst of, of moving, as I mentioned with the Packers were here yesterday, it's chaotic, it's hard. Um, it's expensive. Everything happens at once. Right. Do you ever have those voices Mace that, uh, and, and Lon as, as a follow-up to say, Hey, you know, what if, what if I'd stayed and, and, uh, you know, what if this doesn't work out and how do you, how do you approach that right now? I think for me right now, I, I know how I felt when I was in the thick of it and I know why I made this decision and I try to just look forward with, you kind of call it the curiosity, like show up with curiosity. Um, someone was like, Hey, you have to have an abundance mindset when it comes to what you're stepping into. And there have been a few nights where right before I've been trying to fall asleep, all of a sudden I will like think about my calendar for the next month and I'll be like, oh no, there's not that many income generating things on there. And I'll like, it'll just be this moment of like, when will I get a paycheck next? And then I, so I had that actually just last week, the next day, Microsoft emailed me and I'm speaking to Microsoft in Seattle two weeks from now. Like, I've just, I'm, I'm not especially religious, but I've learned that you just have to have faith. Like you made that decision for a reason. 
and I'm showing up with abundance mindset, curiosity, and optimism, maybe foolishly, but it's working really well so far. I love it. That is a spectacular answer. I would, I would add this, Neil. Um, everybody asks what if after you've made a decision and you look back, but um, the best advice I ever received and the advice I give to people where you're at is what if you wouldn't, what if, what if you stayed, what would you regret more? Would you, do you think that you're going to get five years down the line? And I don't know where you're going. I don't know what you're doing, but you're chasing something. Do you think in five years down the line, you're going to be apologetic and regretful for chasing it? Or what if you just stayed and now you're five years older, five more years went by and you think to yourself, why didn't I do it when I thought about it? Which are you going to regret more? And usually I default to the, let's give it a whirl. Let's, 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 let's go for it. Now, financially, it could work out differently, whatever. But um, uh, I, I default on the side of follow, follow what's in here and the rest of it works out. That's great advice, Lon, uh, and I appreciate it. And I, you know, I think it's just it's it's worth mentioning that it's there's so much inertia when you leave the the military. Mace talked about, hey, here's it's easy to become an airline pilot. It's easy to go to this avenue. It's the same for me as well. It's you know, here, here's your job waiting for you. What do you want to do? Um, but it's tough to take an inward look and say, what do I really want to do? And where do I really want to be in the next? five, 10, 15 years down the line. So, and, and really that's where I, I, I got attracted um, with your network law and was just, Hey, here's, here's some, a group of civilian guys that do it, that move, that take the jump more often. Um, but uh, it, it's great having Mace is, is the first one of these opportunities I've jumped on. So thanks so much. For sure. And quick pile onto that. I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel Pink, but this book, I just got it. The power of regret. Because I, I heard him do a podcast interview on Jordan Harbinger's show. He talks about exactly what you're talking about. And he breaks down regret into the categories and how it's actually a powerful force to move you forward. And he talks about that people greatly tend to regret inaction more than action. And he also talks about in per, terms of professional regrets, that the biggest thing that people regret is not making bold choices. So it's, it's super interesting to read as I make this pivot. So maybe a book you want to look into. Awesome. Thanks for the question, Neil. And thanks for the great answers, Mace. Anyone else want to hop in on a question? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have a quick question, Neil Brown here. Uh, Lon, you and I have talked a couple of yeah. times. And thank you for taking the time. Sure. Um, uh, I think, I mean, I have a, a slew of questions, but I'll, I'll keep it fairly concise for, for Mace. Um, as a, as a father of two daughters, I'm curious what your, what your approach is with, with the younger girls who have, you know, a, a vision of you or, or when you had that, you know, when you had that position, when you walked out in your suit and, and they got to see you and then see that, that powerful figure, what, um, how are you, transitioning now to the private sector and how are you going to, or do you plan to carry that over into, you know, talks with, with schools or, or, or volunteering with certain, certain organizations. I know you said you volunteer with a few, but I'm just curious how you're, 
how you're leveraging that that specific power, uh, potentially superpower, to uh, to really help um, you know, help young girls. Yeah, so that was my my favorite uh, interactions on on the Thunderbirds were with with girls like kids, and it's tougher to turn that one into a business model for sure. But honestly, my very first uh, paid speaking event was at a school. And then I actually gave a commencement speech last month, which was also paid. And so I'm realizing there is opportunities to do that there. I think my, you know, what I want to get to is a spot where my corporate events that pay a lot more, I can pick and choose those. And that gives me the freedom and the flexibility to do things for free or for very low fees. And um, there's been a couple of museums that have reached out, some other schools. And I, I definitely plan on mixing those in with the you know big corporate events. And to be in a spot where I can choose to have that balance is one of those goals that I have set for myself in the next year or two. So I definitely want to be able to continue to do that. Awesome. Well, we're at time. We're actually a little bit over. Um, so everyone, thanks for joining. Mace, this was superb. It's great. You, you are a gem. It's been great to get to know you. Uh, let's, uh, let's keep in touch. So for everyone who's on this call, one of a plug I'm going to put in, is look, Mesa's for hire and she's just getting started. So go out and get on her LinkedIn page and follow her and friend her. And you all are in positions to help, every one of you. Uh, I am too. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna do whatever I can to do it uh, because I've got a sneaking suspicion that this isn't the last we've seen of Mace on big, big stages doing big, big things. And, uh, and we get to be part of it in the early stages. And uh, so show up for her and, uh, and she'll do the same for, for any of you. And I'd, uh, I'd appreciate it if you'd do that. Mace, anything in closing before we, before we make the hop? No, I just, I really appreciate that. It's been amazing to see people who have kind of followed me through social media as a Thunderbird, all of a sudden show up in my email container that work for all kinds of different companies or know people that do. And most of the big speaking events that I have booked so far have been with people that feel like they know me because they followed along on my journey for the last two to four years. So it's been really cool. And I'm very thankful um, for all of the people that have, you know, taken a little bit of a chance on me as new to the speaking circuit, but it's been awesome. Cool. Well, I'm going to post this. And in my post, when I, when I uh, put this out there inside the group, I'm going to ask and remind people to, to show up um, just like you would for them. So thanks a bunch. Thanks everyone for showing up. I really appreciate it. Everyone, that's a wrap. Thank you to Mace for being here. Thanks for spending this uh, a wonderful hour with us so early in our journey. It's so it was so fun. I hadn't I hadn't actually listened to this podcast or this this recording in in probably nine or ten months. And um, it was so fun to hear where her story was at that time and where my story was at that time, um, just, just one year ago. And it's going to be so interesting on the next time we talk to hear where she's at now, what she's doing now, and um, what, what surprises she's had along the way 
Um, and for those of you who follow my journey, you kind of know what's happening in my world, but I would imagine she and I are going to talk about that too. As of this recording, we haven't had this conversation yet, Mace and I, uh, but, uh, but obviously in the next week, we've got that scheduled and we're, we're going we're gonna to drive it home. Hey, one more thing. I just want to remind you, my book is coming out July 19th. The name of the book is The Trade. It's going to be available on Amazon. You can find early access at normal40.com. And I would love, love, love it if you bought a copy for yourself. Here's my selfish ask. If you're going to buy a copy for yourself, great. And you're going to sit down and you're going to read it. Spectacular. It's going to be a quick read. It's not a long book, people. It's a quick read because we're busy. But if you can not only buy the book, but also buy the Audible version, excuse me, not the Audible, the Kindle version, Audible is not out yet, but also buy the Kindle version, that does a couple of things. One, that is the algorithm that that um, Amazon uses to do to, to rank their bestsellers. And it's also the algorithm that the New York Times uses to make their list of bestsellers. So if you would be so kind to spend an extra few bucks and also buy the Kindle version, I would be grateful. If not, I totally get it. Hey, everyone, thanks for being here. Thanks for being part of the Normal 40 Highway. Thank you to Adam always for helping put this together. And thanks for uh, everyone who's in the community. If you want to join the Insider, if you want access to some of this, go to normal40.com, click on communities up at the top, go down and find Insider and sign up. And my goal is to make it the best 25 bucks a month you spend. And you get to hang out with people like us. All right, everyone, thanks for being here. Thanks for being who you are. I'm going to see each of you on the next page.